In the third chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, I'd like to look at the account of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that, we'll try to look today at the doctrine of the Trinity of the Godhead. Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, it says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It would be recorded in one of the other gospels that John beheld the spirit in the form of a dove lighting upon him and abiding with the Lord Jesus Christ and certainly he had the spirit of God with him uh, as he was here uh, upon the earth. We've been looking at the uh, doctrine of God, who God is, and um, we've seen God in his creative powers, the eternality of God, the self-sufficiency of God, that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present. Uh, today, though, we would like to look at the subject of the Godhead. There are some that do not like the term Trinity because it's not found in the Word of God, but we do use a lot of theological terms that are not found in the Word of God, but the teaching is found in God's Word. The word Godhead indicates that there's more than one person in uh, the Godhead that makes up who God is. Uh, the word Godhead is found three times in the New Testament. <clears throat> All three times it's penned by the Apostle Paul. We find in Acts chapter 17 when he was dealing with the uh, Stoics and the Epicureans on Mars Hill, he spoke about the Godhead. In Act, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 1, when he was addressing the creation and its testimony of who God is, it talks about his eternal power and Godhead. The creation itself sings and praises the Godhead so that no one on this earth is without excuse for not believing in the Godhead. And then the Apostle Paul would let us know in Colossians chapter 2 that in the Lord Jesus Christ dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So he defends the Godhead to the Stoics and the Epicureans. He lets us know in Romans 1 that even the atheists of this world have no reason and no excuse for not believing in God. And then he lets us know that if we want to see the fullness of the Godhead, we just need to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at the Godhead, the Bible lets us know in Hebrews, excuse me, Numbers chapter 6, let me start again. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, Paul says there is one Lord. So if that is true, how can there be three in the Godhead? In the Godhead, there are three persons, but one essence. What do I mean by that? Well, one essence means that the word essence is who we are. So when we talk about the essence of who God is, it's just who he is, his character, his attributes. And as you look at God the Father or God the Son or God the Holy Ghost, you will see those same attributes on display in all three. And we may break this down over the next few weeks and maybe look at each of the three persons of Godhead individually. But as you think about them, uh, you'll see that they all exhibit the same attributes. They're one in essence. Uh, they are completely united in who they are, who, what it is that makes them up. And that is why there's one God. Now, this one God is in three persons. By that, uh, when we use the word person, it means a, a distinct 
individual, but we also had to be careful about that and still bring it back, though, that they are so united that while there's three, he's still one. And you say, well, how in the world do we comprehend that? We really don't. I'm going to preach to you today, God willing, on some things that I don't really comprehend, but I believe them to be so. And I cannot give you adequate analogies. In fact, I'm really not even going to try. I've heard and I've tried myself to give analogies. For instance, that, you know, here I am standing before you and I'm a pastor, I'm a father, I'm a husband. That falls very short of describing the Godhead because at the, at the core of it, I'm still the same person. Uh, but yet there is a definite distinction between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Now, if I say that I'm a husband, father, and pastor, you still know it's just me. So that really doesn't capture the Godhead. Now, I understand that even in our own nature, how God made us, that we are three, that we are body, soul, and spirit. But at the same time, there is a difference in the essence of the body from the soul and the soul from the spirit and so forth. And so that really doesn't even quite capture uh, the Godhead either, even though these three dwell in one person here. But there's distinctions between those three and between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Uh, God the Holy Ghost there's no distinction in their essence, who they are, what they are. And so we have to be very careful how we try to describe the Godhead we find that there's no questioning among what I'm going to just say orthodox thinkers about God the Father being God. There's been a lot, though, of questioning about the Godhead of the Lord Jesus Christ and even the Godhead of the Holy Spirit. And so there's been a lot of writings to defend the deity of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we may try to look at those things separately in the weeks to come. But here in Matthew chapter 3, as we read the account of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's so many areas we could go with his baptism, but primarily we want to look at the fact that we see three in the Godhead in one place at one time. Now, as you see, John is baptizing at the River Jordan. He's been doing so for a while. The Pharisees have come out to him, also wanting to be baptized. They want to be part of what's going on here. And John would not suffer them to be baptized because they were wicked. He says uh, very clearly to them what they are. He lets them know that they're nothing more but than a generation of vipers. And so he says, I want nothing to do with you. But on the heels of that, here comes Jesus from Galilee. Now, if you read Bible maps, you're going to find that Jesus Christ walks some 60 to 90 miles to John to be baptized. Now, why does he come to John? Because at this point in time, there's only one human being that has the authority on the face of the earth to baptize anybody, and that's John the Baptist. You say, well, where did he get his authority? He got it directly from heaven. Uh, There was a man, the Bible says, John chapter 1, there was a man whose name was John who was sent from God. So God sent John, and we see that in the birth of John the Baptist. His conception was uh, supernatural. Uh, His parents were old. His mother was barren, never had had children. And yet God uh, blesses her in her old age to have a son, and his name would be called John. He would be very peculiar in his ministry. The Bible lets us know that he uh, wore some strange clothing, ate strange food. He was a very uh, strange individual. In fact, later the Lord Jesus Christ would say, you know, there's no pleasing anybody. He says, because John came neither eating nor drinking. Uh, and y'all, you know, you thought him odd. He says, and the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you said, he's gluttonous in a wine berry. He says, so there's no uh, pleasing y'all whatsoever. Uh, so whichever way you look at it, uh, we're going to be criticized. 
Well, here the Lord Jesus Christ comes to John, which happens to be his natural cousin. Uh, we find that Elizabeth and uh, Mary, the mother of Christ, were cousins. And they're related. But as far as we can tell uh, through the biblical narrative, I don't know that they've ever met prior to this occasion. So here comes Jesus to John. And here he is at 30 years of age. He's at the age in life when the Pharisees and Jewish custom would recognize him as a mature man who had the ability uh, to hold an office, the ability to hold a ministry. So the Lord Jesus Christ waits for 30 years. Think about that. For 30 years of his life, we know very little about him. We know that he was brought uh, for the days of purification for his mother to the temple when he was an infant. We know that the wise men came and they offered gifts to him when he was a babe. And we also know that in uh, his 12th year of age, he was in Jerusalem confounding the doctors and the lawyers with his uh, questions and also the answers which he gave. So very little is known about the life of Jesus uh, outside of a couple little brief snippets in uh, his young life. From age 12 to age 30, we know nothing. Uh, think about that. For nearly two decades, the Lord Jesus Christ lives in total obscurity. He lives in a place called Nazareth. Remember later uh, when Nathaniel and, and can any good thing come out of that? It was just a backwater little bitty community, kind of like Tuscola, Texas, where I come from, that nobody knows about and nobody esteems. Well, in fact, they knew about this when it was so backwater that it was so despised that they thought, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So the disciples said, come and see. You know, he wasn't going to argue with him. And sometimes that's the best thing you can do with somebody you're trying to show the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is say, just come and see. I can try to describe it to you. But if you'll come to the house of God and hopefully the man of God will be blessed with the spirit of God, preaching the word of God, hopefully it'll have a deeper impact upon you when you're sitting there in the house of God with the saints of God than here in this world while we're trying to talk about it here, whether in the workplace or the schoolhouse. So one of the best things you can just tell folks is, well, you know what, if you you doubt it just come and see and just leave it that simple and either they will or they won't hopefully they'll be intrigued enough about the doctrines of grace that you talk to them about they'll want to come and see so for almost 20 years Jesus lives in obscurity now we know that he's known about because there's some that will despise him because he's the carpenter's son so they associate him with the carpenter's shop uh, so we suspect that for that time that he lived in obedience to his parents and he labored as a carpenter here in this world, and which would be fitting with the lives of most of the apostles. Most of them had positions that were fairly lowly in consideration uh, to other professions in this world. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they were all fishermen. That was not, uh, you know, a high occupation. Uh, that was blue-collar work, if you will. So here the Lord Jesus Christ understood, even in his profession, what it was to be lowly in this life. You say, well, you know, I've always worked as, uh, you know, a mechanic or a janitor or this. Don't worry about it. The Lord Jesus Christ understands. He had a lowly profession as well. Don't let those things be despised in the eyes of others. Anyway, so Jesus comes to John. He walks 60 to 90 miles to be baptized because this is the only authority on earth, the only person on earth at this time who can baptize. And Jesus is willing to walk a long distance to be baptized. And we ought to be willing to do whatever is necessary to be a follower of Jesus, including walking a few feet from back there to down here to be baptized. 
Because notice what Jesus goes on to say when he comes to John the Baptist, which when he came to John, in John's gospel, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So John knew that this was the Son of God. This is the Lamb of God. Now notice here it says, he comes to John, and he wants to be baptized of him. But John forbade him. John says, no. And he doesn't do so because he's haughty, or Jesus isn't worthy, like the Pharisees just before. They were not worthy, certainly not. But John sees in Christ someone far greater than him. He would later say that there's one that's coming whose shoe latchet I'm not worthy to unloose. He says, he's greater than I. He said, he was before me. He would go on to say, he must increase and I must decrease. My ministry must diminish, but his must increase. And John was not at all jealous about that. He understood this was what God intended. He understood that when he was called to this ministry and he was satisfied with that. You know, I would to God that when younger men are called into the ministry by God, older men understand that this is a blessing from God, that according to Ephesians chapter 4, that the ascended Christ gives gifts to his church, and there comes a time that those young men need to increase, and there may come a time that the older men need to diminish or decrease and give them place so that hopefully they can learn and grow and then have the opportunity, hopefully with strength of body and mind, to serve the people of God. And I hope... <laughs> that when I reach that age, that I will take note of that and will do it on my own. If not, I'm going to charge my wife and my children that they're responsible to let me know when it's time to come out of the pulpit and let somebody else occupy it. Uh, I know several ministers that have given charge to other young preachers, saying, it's your job to come let me know when it's no longer appropriate for me to go into the pulpit to preach the people of God. Now, I don't want that responsibility, but I'll hand it to others. But anyway... John forbade him. Again, this is not out of haughtiness. It's not out of Jesus' unworthiness. This is John recognizing this is the Son of God. But notice what well, John goes on to say. He said, I have need to be baptized of thee, and thou comest to me. And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, being baptized is not the only righteous act that a child of God is supposed to do. It's the beginning of our discipleship. And when Jesus says, it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness, he's not saying that once I do this, I'm finished. I've done everything that's necessary for righteousness. I don't have to do anything more. But what he is saying that in my ministry, in the succession, succession of acts that I am to do to please my Father, I can't begin those until I do this. If I'm going to fulfill all righteousness, the first thing that I have to do publicly is be baptized, and then I can do the other things that God has called me to do. And you and I should learn from that, that if we're going to truly serve the Lord as disciples, the first thing for us to do in the succession of our steps in following Jesus is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that once you do this, you're now, you know, you're done. You can just sit down and have nothing more to do. No, we're to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we're called. And after the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, he got very busy. This man who lived in obscurity uh, for uh, most of his life, for 30 years now, is going to be very active and very busy in the kingdom of God. He is going to be performing miracles, preaching the gospel, establishing his kingdom, and building his church, and then saving the elect family of God. That's a very busy man, and he did all of that in three and a half years. 
three and a half years, he establishes his church that's been going on for 2,000 years. And he also saved every elect child of God in his death at Calvary. He did all of that in a short amount of time. <laughs> anyway, so Jesus says, Suffer to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he baptized him. Jesus, when he was baptized, he went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were open unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God. So you have Jesus, the Son of God. Now, the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and there's a reason he took the form of a dove, which we'll cover another time. And then you hear the voice from heaven, which is God the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom... I am well pleased. So in this one occasion, we see God the Father speak, or we hear. We see the Spirit of God in the form of a dove, and there is the Son of God being baptized. Three, yet they're one God. Again, they're one in their essence. Let us turn for a few moments to the very opening of the Word of God. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God... Obviously, God wrote his own word, inspired it, and has preserved it. I would have written this a little differently. I would have said in the beginning God, but I would have used a different word for God. Now, I am no Hebrew scholar. I'm not even an English scholar for that matter. Um, But there is need from time to time to study the original languages. Now, I don't need to speak them. I, I have no desire to be fluent in Greek or Latin or Hebrew. I could waste a lot of time with that, and that's what it would be in my consideration, a waste of time. Now, other folks I know maybe enjoy doing that. I have known ministers of the gospel that could speak fluently in Greek. And God bless them if that's what they want to do with their time and study the word of God in the original language. I have no issue with that whatsoever. It's just not for me. But I have studied uh, languages enough to know at least definitions of words. In the beginning, God. I would have put in the beginning, Jehovah. That's how I would have started that is not how Moses, is, uh, will be, Moses will begin the word of God. I would have said in the beginning Jehovah, the self-existing eternal one, created the heaven and the earth. But that's not the word that Moses used. He uses the word Elohim. E-L-O-H-I-M. What does that mean? It means the plural God. It means the faces of God. It means the personalities of the Godhead. It literally is talking about the plurality. And in Jewish language, now I don't, again, I'm not fluent in it, and I have to trust uh, writers that I read, and I have found them to be honest in, in other areas, so I'm going to trust them here. But I haven't proved this out for myself. But they said that under Jewish understanding, when something is plural, it has to be three or more. Otherwise, you have singular, you'll have dual, and you have plural in the Jewish language, in the Hebrew. So when it says plural here, Elohim, it means at least three. It can mean more than three, but it cannot mean less than three. So when uh, Moses uses this word here, he introduces us to the Godhead in the very first verse of the Bible. So in the very, again, I would have said Jehovah, but I would have been mistaken. Now we do need to know that he's the self-existent eternal one. But in the introduction of God, in the word of God, we find out immediately that God is made out of the Godhead. That there are three persons that make up the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we're going to find that here in a little while when he says, let us make man in our image. So obviously, 
there's more than one that are having a conversation here in the matter of creation. And again, in, in the very first verse, it says that this God is a plurality. That there are three that make up the Godhead. Again, he's one in his essence. There's no division in the character of God. Uh, every attribute that God the Father has that we've looked at already, the God, God the Son possesses those same attributes. God the Spirit possesses those same attributes. Every single attribute, whether they be the attributes that God can communicate, mean give to us, or the ones that cannot be communicated, reserved only to Him, all three in the Godhead possess those attributes. Jesus Christ is eternal. He's just as eternal as God the Father. God the Holy Spirit is just as eternal as God the Father and God the Son. When we talk about the omnipotence of God, God being all-powerful, when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, uh, yeah, Matthew chapter 28, he says, all power. Now, when you see that word, there's two words for power. It can mean um, ability or authority. Here he's talking about authority. He says, all authority is given me both in heaven and earth. In other words, I have all authority. He has as much authority as God the Father. But we also find that in the regeneration of the child of God, that the Spirit of God also is sovereign. Remember John chapter 3? The Lord Jesus Christ speaking to Nicodemus. What's he talking about? When he talks about the Spirit of God, what does he say about it? It says the Spirit of God is like the wind. It bloweth where it listeth. So the Spirit of God is just as sovereign as God the Father and God the Son. But because they're one in essence, their will is always completely united. So that you don't have God the Son doing something opposite of what God the Father wants. And God the Spirit is not going to go out and regenerate somebody that Jesus didn't die for. They are always in complete harmony. There's no division in them whatsoever. You know, when a man and a wife are married, the Bible tells us that these two become one flesh. But they're not one mind. How many times have you seen a husband and a wife have two different uh, ideas, two different sets of goals, a uh, set of priorities, and maybe be as faithful to one another as they could be? They're as committed as one flesh as they could be, but yet they have different minds and thoughts. They're obviously still distinct in the sense of election and the redemption of their soul in the new birth. All that, but, uh, but in God, there's no separation of will. There's no separation of thought. I've heard it said when you know, the Lord Jesus Christ was there in Gethsemane, you know, three times he prayed. Three times in the midst of the garden with Peter, James, and John asleep, Jesus goes a little further and he says these words. He says... Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as thou wilt. Say, so see right there, that tells you that there's a division in the Godhead. Jesus has a separate will from God the Father. No, he does not. What is Jesus asking for? I've heard it said two different ways, and it took a long time for me to finally hear somebody preach this verse in a way that immediately when I heard it preached, I knew exactly that was what was being expressed. In my home state, the predominant view about Jesus saying that is this, is that Jesus was ready to go on to Calvary. And it's true, I believe Jesus was ready to go ahead and suffer and, and put that behind him, but that's not what he's saying there. There's a minority view that says, well, what Jesus was saying is if there's another way... <laughs> In his human will, not his will as the son of God, but in his human will, he's saying, Father, if there's another way, bring it in now. 
Well, that means then that Christ himself was divided in his humanity and his deity, which would indicate to me that even in his humanity, maybe he wasn't quite sinless because he's wanting something different from what God wants. But that's not what's going on. See, the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ were perfectly in unison there as well, just as much as God the Son was in unison with God the Father. So what was he saying? He was saying this. What, what was the consequence of our sin? What was supposed to happen to us for our offense against God? It was supposed to be an eternal separation from God. That was what God was requiring. So what is Jesus asking for? He said, if it be possible, let this cut, what this condemnation and this wrath, wrath pass from me. Now, if he was saying, I'm ready to go ahead and go to Calvary, why didn't he say, let this pa uh, cut pass to me? That's what he should have said if that's what he was thinking. That's not what he says, though. He said, let it pass from me. In other words, let the suffering come, but let it have an end. In other words, Father, if it be possible, which he knew that it was, but for our benefit, he was saying, if it be possible, take your wrath that's infinite and bind it up in moments of time and let it pass from me. I'll, but you know what that also tells me? That Jesus was willing, if necessary... He would have suffered the condemnation, the penalty of our sin, and if it really required an eternal separation from God the Father in order to do it, He would have done it. That's how much He loved you, and that's how much He loved me. But God did not require that. God, it was possible. So God, and how He did it, I don't know, He took His infinite wrath, and he wrapped it up in a, a, a moment of time. And there the Lord Jesus Christ bore in his body the wrath of God. And God was satisfied. And Jesus gave up the ghost knowing that the Father was completely satisfied with the offering of the Son. So he dies. He goes to the grave. And three days and three nights later, after that, what happened? He arises. He comes back to life. Which tells us. That God was satisfied. How do we know? Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says, Jesus was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. So the very fact that Jesus rose from the dead is a testimony that God was satisfied with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And with the death of God's son, you and I were redeemed. So here in, in, on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is praying which that alone lets us know that there's more than one in the Godhead. Why would he pray to himself? <laughs> That'd be unnecessary. He's praying to his father because his father's in heaven and here he is on the earth doing the will of his father. Remember he says, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. He said, well, there again, there's a separate will between God the Father. God. He didn't say that. What he's letting us know is I'm here on a mission that God set forth in the eternal covenant that I agreed to in the eternal covenant and I'm here executing the part that was given to me before the world began. Jesus didn't say, well, I came down here against my will, didn't really want to, but if I said, okay, Father, I'll do what you said, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's just letting us know that I'm down here doing what my Father is the one who initiated. It was God the Father who initiated the eternal covenant before time ever began. And Jesus just says, I'm doing what God, my Father, uh, sent me here to do. Again, he's not saying that his will and my will are separate and I'm submitting myself to his will. No, their will was still completely united. He's just letting us know it was God the Father who initiated the scheme of salvation before the world ever began. So in the beginning, Genesis 1 again, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So we find from the very first sentence of the Bible that there's more than one in the Godhead. And again, 
It's in the plural, which according to those who understand Hebrew language far better than me, say if it's plural, it has to be at least three. Because again, in their language, you have it in the singular or in the dual or in the plural. Now, y'all can look that up and say, well, Brother Chris, that's not right. But again, I've read enough men that said that. I'm going to trust their word. I don't know the language well enough to prove it either way. But I know this, the Bible teaches it. The Bible teaches there are three that make up the Godhead. For there are three that bear record in heaven, 1 John 5, 7. The Father, and understand this, there's a lot, of, a lot of people that deny the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. They run to this verse. They'll say, see here it says, the Father, the Word... So he must have been the word in eternity, and when he came into the world, he began, no, he's eternally the son of God. Notice what John says. This is after the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, seated at the right hand of God. He said, for there are three, there are three presently that bear record. In See, he should have said there were three if this was denying the eternal sonship, but it's not. He says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the word capital W, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So again, he says, even Jesus said that in John chapter 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I've said this before, but it's worth saying again. I thank God that that verse says that he knows them, not that they know him. Now, I do believe that God introduces himself in regeneration. And at least in the deep recesses of our heart, we know who he is. We may not be able to communicate the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but God introduces himself to every child of God. The Bible teaches us that God shall uh, teach us to know him from the least to the greatest. So Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. He says, and I know them. Some people think that for you to get to heaven, you must know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, as long as I know them, that's satisfactory. He says, uh, again, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And then he goes on to let us know that we're in his hand, and together we're in the Father's hand, and then he closes out that whole sermon with this, I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. The doctrine of the Trinity, or the Godhead, is... It's vital. Number one, it helps us to understand creation. The way I, I, I often think of and we'll get to another point. The, I, I often think of the creator this way, the creation this way. You have God the Father, the architect. As you know, in my life, I've done a lot of building. You have an architect who comes up with a plan. You have the Lord Jesus Christ who executes the plan or builds. And then you have the Spirit of God that empowers or enlivens you know the purpose of a structure obviously when this building was built obviously there were architectural plans drawn up in fact they're in my office well those plans obviously if you came and laid them out on the ground out here where this building now sits aren't sufficient to keep people undercover and protected so something had to happen somebody had to look at those plans those blueprints and build a building but obviously the building of this building had a purpose 
It wasn't just so that there would be this nice structure for folks to look at when they run up and down uh, County Road 39 out here. It wasn't just so that there would be this edifice here with a name on a sign. No, it was for the purpose of the assembling of the saints together in one location to worship the Lord. And obviously the old sanctuary, the church outgrew it, and so it was determined that there was a need for a new one. And so this one was built. And then, so here you have, uh, there were uh, blueprints drawn up. Builders built a building, and then you have people that inhabit it. When you look at creation, the same thing. You have God who came up with the plan. Jesus who executed it, and the Spirit who enlivens. And that's true even of our own lives. God who elected us, Jesus who saves us, and then who is it that gives us eternal life? It's the Spirit of God who enlivens us. So even in the creation, we must understand the Godhead, but especially when it comes to redemption. Let's turn for a moment to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter starts out his epistle this way. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I'll pause for just a moment. In the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, the apostle Paul, after having met with the apostles and the church at Jerusalem to settle the matter on whether or not it was necessary to be circumcised in order to be saved. And they settled that matter once and for all. As the apostle Peter stood up and said, we believe that they, the Gentiles, are saved even as we. How? By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, anyway, after that episode is finished, the apostle Paul had a desire to go and preach the gospel in Asia. And the spirit forbade him. And then he wanted to go into Bithynia, it says, but the Spirit suffered him not. Now, Paul wants to go to these two places, the Spirit says no. And then here he is in the night, a vision comes, and there was a man in Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And he goes to Philippi, and there is Lydia sitting by a river praying. And, of course, the gospel was preached to her, and she and her household were baptized. I bring all this up to notice here in 1 Peter chapter 1 that there was a ministry to take place in Asia and Bithynia. It was not Paul's ministry, though. It was apparently the ministry of the Apostle Peter. So here Peter, he said, I'm writing to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Notice what he says, verse 2. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. This verse is one of the most succinct verses in all the Bible to let us understand how it is that you and I are saved. It lets us know that God the Father elected us. Notice again, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now we've said before, uh, the foreknowledge in the word of God does not just simply mean when God uh, has foreknowledge of you and I, just simply mean that he knew that we would exist. God is omniscient. He knows all things. God also has precious meaning. He knows all things ahead of time. But just because God knows something does not mean that that is a causative thing with God. But God's foreknowledge goes deeper than God simply knowing something ahead of time. The foreknowledge of God indicates that God knows something intimately in a way of love. So he says, elect according or in agreement with the foreknowledge of God. So that tells me that God only elected those that he knew in love before the world began. That's the only ones that were elected. Now, there were other people that God, through his preachings, knew would exist, but God did not foreknow them. Uh, God did not love them before time began, and thus they were not embraced uh, when he elected uh, his people. 
You say, well, that's unfair. Well, take it up with God when you get to him. Don't take it up with me. I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says. And the Bible declares that we are the elect, that, and that's an agreement with the foreknowledge of God. So God only elected those that he foreknew, meaning he intimately was aware of in a way of love before the world began. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. That's how you and I gain eternal life. That's when it becomes vital, if you will. That means when it becomes real for you and I. Now I realize when the Lord Jesus Christ died at Calvary and he rose again, that legally we had eternal life. But until we're born to the Spirit of God, that's not communicated to us yet. But in the very moment that you were born of the Spirit of God, you became a possessor of eternal life. And for those who like to believe that you could lose that life, then they don't believe in eternal life. Because eternal is clearly meaning it goes on forever. It can't have a, uh, an ending at any point and still be defined as eternal. I've always been amazed by those who deny that once saved, always saved. How do you deny that and also say that if you'll believe or do this, you'll have eternal life? <laughs> well, do you really believe that or not? Well, if you believe that, then you believe that no matter what happens, from the moment that you are a possessor of eternal life, you will always be a possessor of eternal life. Legally, it's yours at the cross. Vitally, it's yours sometime between the time you were conceived in your mother's womb and will breathe out your last breath. John the Baptist was born again in his mother's womb before he was born the first time naturally. Saul of Tarsus was born again on the road to Damascus in the uh, probably strongest point of his life when he was at his prime the thief on the cross you know god's never late to our perspective it may look like well god got there just in the nick of time no he was always right on time he knew exactly when he was going to give eternal life to that thief on that cross and so we find in the word of god an example of somebody being given eternal life still in their mother's womb somebody about to go to the grave and somebody in the middle period of their life. I fall in the first category. I don't remember a time not knowing the Lord or loving the Lord. I just don't know that time in my life. From my earliest memories, I had a love for God. And so I don't know what that experience is like. But I have talked to individuals that can tell me the precise moment that God came and introduced himself to them. Uh, that they know that they, when they went from loving darkness and hating God to loving God and hating darkness. And I'm just going to believe that they had a Saul of Tarsus experience. And I believe that's when they were born again of the Spirit of God. If it can happen in the Word of God, it can happen here in our lives today. But anyway, he says, elect according in agreement with the foreknowledge of God the Father through, so that means this is how it's communicated to us, our salvation, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the means by which we were saved. So God the Father elected us. God the Spirit sanctifies us. That means makes us holy, gives us divine life. But it was the obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ that redeemed us from all Iniquity. That verse right there captures clearly how we were saved. Now, if we believe in Elohim, that God is plural, that there are three that make up the Godhead, we have no trouble embracing what is taught here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. In fact, if you and I are to be redeemed, if we are redeemed, then God the Son and God the Spirit must be God. They must be deity. Angels could not redeem us. Men certainly could not redeem us. 
It would take somebody who would be man and God in one. And it would take somebody that would be God that would communicate divine life to us. I can talk to you about divine life, but I cannot give it to you. Now the Lord Jesus Christ, He can speak through the voice of the Spirit of God and all of a sudden there is life there. I don't have that ability. I can talk about, uh, I can try to bring light. I can try to bring knowledge. I can try through the preaching of the gospel or conversing with you to try to teach you more about God. But if God has not Himself been there first, there's nothing that I can do to introduce you to God. I'm not uh, God's neighbor and you're a new person moving in on the block and let me say, here, let's go over and I'll introduce you. That's not how it works. Uh, God takes care of that all by himself. The purpose of the gospel is not to give life, but it is to bring life and immortality to light. I think that's one of the most clear verses in all the Bible that lets us know what the purpose of the gospel is. Now, I know there's a lot of people that talk about what the gospel doesn't do, and we need to know that. We need to know what it does do. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. <laughs> to a believer, it'll save. To somebody who doesn't believe, it's no good to them. Uh, it doesn't help them. It's helped me tremendously in my life. But anyway, here again, Peter says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Again, if God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are not equally God then the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus and his obedience was for naught. And anything that the Spirit of God would communicate to us, if he is not God, does no good. Isaiah, God is pretty plain. He says, I am God. There is none else. He'll let us know that there was no God before me. Neither shall there be any gods after me. He says, I am God, I alone, I am he. Well, to reconcile that, again, especially in the matter of redemption, then we must understand that God is speaking as the Godhead. That when he speaks there that I am God and there is none else, he's not saying that also excludes God the Son or God the Holy Spirit. That includes God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And that is vital to understand. Again, the matter of our redemption hinges on the reality that God the Son truly is deity. That even though he became a man, he came down from heaven. Notice again, I came down from heaven. That's where he existed before time began. The scriptures let us know there in the beginning, God. So anything that we see about God throughout the world, that was how he was before time began. When it says in the beginning, God, that doesn't mean that that's God's beginning. That's just letting us know that the Godhead in the beginning made this world. But the same God that made this world and that we see uh, communicates who he is throughout the word of God. That's the same God that existed before he made the world. Uh, he's never altered. He's never changed. We believe in the immutability of God, meaning the unchangeableness of God. Well, that applies to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. How do I know that? Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, did Jesus ever change? Certainly he did. In his humanity, he changed. He went from being uh, conceived in the womb to being a babe in a manger, uh, to being a 12-year-old child, to being an adult man. Obviously, he changed in his humanity in the sense of he grew up. But what's talking about in his essence of who he is, the Son of God, but also the Son of Man come to represent us in the matter of salvation. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. As we tried to point out when we looked at the unchangeableness of God, that doctrine is so vital 
For as God said in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Well, Jesus has the same attribute of unchangeableness. According to Paul in Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When Paul wrote that, that covers today. And it'll cover tomorrow. And again, that's so vital for me to know and for you to know that God and the Lord Jesus Christ never alters. He does not change. He doesn't, he's not one way today and another way tomorrow. The same attributes you see in God the Father are possessed by God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We find that the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 as he concludes there, and we're going to try to conclude ourselves. Very last verse to the church at Corinth. He says this, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Of all things that Paul wanted them to remember, his last words to this church, as far as we know, again, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. He does just what Peter did over in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he lets us know how it is that we're saved. Here he lets us know how it is that we remain in a blessed condition with God our Father. Again, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We certainly want that abiding with us, do we not? I need the abiding grace of the Savior every day in my life. Then he says, and the love of God. How in the world are we going to have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ without the love of God? You won't. It is love that motivated God's grace toward us. It's the grace of God that bestowed life upon us that we're so unworthy of anything from God. That all derived from the love of God. And then he says, and the communion of the Holy Ghost. In other words, he says, the Holy Ghost will come and be present. Just like Jesus says in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, he says, I go away that the Comforter will come. And he says, he will guide you, not it. He will guide you into all truth. That the Comforter would be with them, bless them, guide them, help them uh, throughout their journey. And the same is true for you and I. He abides with us even today. So he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. You couldn't have the grace of, of Christ without the love of God. And you couldn't have the communion of the Holy Ghost without the grace of Christ and the love of God. The three all go together. And that's certainly, I hope, our desire as well, that we would stand in the grace of Christ. That we would continue receiving the love of God. And that we could stand in fellowship continually with the Spirit of God. And then he says, amen, or let it be. So be it. Again... Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Be cautious when you speak of the Trinity. While there are three that make up the Godhead, always remember those three are so united. In their essence, there's no division between them. They're all equally God. The power that the Father has belongs to the Son and belongs to the Holy Spirit. The will of the Father is also the will of the Son and the will of the of the Holy Spirit. The will of the Spirit, the same ways. It goes backwards either direction you want to look at. It. It's all linked together. They're all so united. <laughs> and there's coming a day 
when we will be in the presence of all, that we will see the Godhead. Now, I don't know exactly how that's going to be. I don't know how. I mean, and again, Paul says to the church at Colossae that in Jesus dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I don't know if Jesus be the only one we see or we see the Father we see. I don't know how it's all going to work. I know this, though, we'll be satisfied. And whatever it is that is on display there that we're allowed to behold and see, we'll be satisfied therewith. And it'll be complete. It will be good. It will be a wonderful, wonderful blessing in the moment that we're able to see and witness and behold for ourselves. So whether we're talking about the matter of creation or the matter of redemption, and again, those two are so vitally linked, a lot of times we separate them. And sadly, many denominations of this world, they believe in the sovereignty of God in the matter of creation, but when it comes to the matter of redemption, all of a sudden God sits, steps off his throne for whatever reason. Now, I believe a God who was sovereign in creation is just as sovereign in the matter of redemption. He did not abdicate his throne in the matter of our salvation and leave it to us. He still was just as sovereign in the matter of our redemption as he was in the matter of creation. And as Peter would say, you and I, we have the blessed privilege to commit the keeping of our souls. To who? To our faithful redeemer? No, to our faithful creator in well-doing. We know that he will do well in the keeping of our souls. The one who has created this world and upholds all things by the word of his power has redeemed us and will also care for us all the days of our life. And then when we breathe our last, he will take us from here to there. Or in the event of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll take up these bodies from the ground and restore them, but then also glorify them to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you as our prayer.